So about 10 years ago, I went to hear uh, a Christian philosopher and writer named Dallas Willard. Many of you have heard of him. I heard him speak on the topic of spiritual formation. The venue was the old First Baptist Church in downtown San Francisco, and it was in a very colorful neighborhood. Uh, and I parked a few blocks, uh, a few blocks from the church, and so I'm walking. And as I'm passing, kind of the back of the church, there's an alleyway, and there's all these, all these guys back there, kind of laughing really loud and, and smoking cigarettes, and, and and I think just cigarettes. But they had like crazy spiky hair, like that was kind of. Remember Glenn Plake, the skier with the mohawk? It was something like that, and just like. Um, some very interesting looking people and as I look back on it uh, you know I, I think I kind of tensed up a little bit when I walked by I was a little intimidated um, certainly these people who look so different than I uh, could be dangerous right but oh well I passed the alley passed him right by and after all I was going to hear Dr. Willard speak on spiritual formation I was going to so develop my interior life that I would be able to walk right by that alley again and just have no sense of judgment inside myself. I'd be so compassionate like Mother Teresa. So I get inside and one of the tables right up front by the, the stage was still open. So I get up there, pull out my yellow notepad, two pins, nerd. Uh, just in case one ran out, I was just going to soak this up. Dr. Willer gets up, starts to pray, and I hear all this shuffling in the back and chairs moving around and some light giggling. I turn around. It's that whole crowd from the alleyway. And they're coming in. I'm like, great, they're going to mess up my formation. I'm going to be malformed. So uh, I'm sitting there agitated, you know, and, and we start by singing a few songs together to get the, the session started. And I'm not even into it. Like, I'm like just frustrated. And uh, all of a sudden I hear these beautiful, beautiful voices uh, harmonizing and singing the music so beautifully. It's this group of people that were in the alleyway smoking the cigarettes with the spiky hair and half a dozen piercings in every orifice. And, and, and the deal was is that um, they were part of this church that were reaching out to homeless youth, that every one of them had a story. I later on learned as I got to know them throughout the day that they had been rescued themselves by Jesus right off the street. They had some of the most insightful and practical questions of anyone in that whole conference. And I learned a lot by what they were asking Dallas Willard. I might have been more spiritually formed by meeting them than I was being at the conference in the first place. So what does a worshiper of the living Jesus actually look like? Is it the way we dress? Or is it a hairstyle? Is it a racial thing or a cultural thing or an educational thing? One thing is for sure, Advent, the coming of the living Jesus, inspires, inspires worship. And as we anticipate the second coming of, of Jesus' advent, his second advent, let's take a look at a story that gives us a, one more picture of what it means to be a worshiper of Jesus. Would you stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, 
And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Well, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. You may be seated. Well, like most stories, I think, surrounding the birth and youth of Jesus, the story of the Magi has kind of become common in our culture. I I bet even if you didn't grow up in church hearing all these stories, you still may have noticed a nativity scene or something in a neighbor's house where you've got shepherds and animals and a baby Jesus and these three weird king guys with gifts. Probably been exposed to it a little bit. You probably know the story. And part of the problem of being familiar with these types of stories is that we get over-familiar. And we think we, we know that one really well and we put it off in a box and there's nothing else to learn from it. So for today, let's approach this story as if we're trying to approach it for the very first time. We're going to dig into the context a little bit and see what Matthew might be trying to teach us about this account of Jesus. Well, to begin with, with the the very first verse, we learn that when Jesus was born, Herod the Great was king over Israel. So here's the quick backstory. You ready? If we reach way back into the book of Genesis and the covenant God made with Abraham, we learn that God blesses this guy, Abraham, and says, I'm going to bless you and all your descendants. And then I want you and your descendants to be a blessing to the entire world, right? So Abraham's descendants eventually become the nation of Israel. God's whole plan from the very beginning is to bless this, this people so that they would then share their blessing of material things and spiritual things. So that every nation, men and women and children, would come to know and love and worship God. Every nation... From the very beginning. It's not a new thing with Jesus, okay? So that's, that's the backstory. Now, much of the Old Testament could, very crudely, mind you, much of the Old Testament could very crudely be summarized as Israel seldom succeeding in their calling, in their calling which means that they often failed in their calling. And then you see God being gracious to them over and over again. Well, eventually, Israel turned to idolatry, and most of the twelve tribes of Israel were carried away and dispersed into exile by Assyria in 722 B.C., a long time ago. So the remaining little group of, of, uh, of Israel was uh, dominated by Judah. That's the main tribe down in Jerusalem. Uh, but they didn't fare much better. And after a while, after repeatedly denying God, oppressing the poor, and turning to idols themselves, they, Jerusalem was sacked by Babylon in 597 B.C. In 587, Nebuchadnezzar came back to Jerusalem and took almost all of the skilled labor, the scholars... 
all the upper crust and even the middle class, if there was one, of, Bab- uh, of Israel and took them back to Babylon, made them serve in Babylon. So that's what you call the Babylonian exile. Where were the Jews exiled? Babylon. Remember that. That's going to be important. Okay. Remember earlier uh, in the reading that Patrick read from Isaiah 60, what was supposed to happen? Nate, when, when, when the Messiah would come, you'd have camels coming and frankincense and gold. I'm just saying that that might have something to do with it. So they're in Babylon, and it's in Babylon where Isaiah wrote that prophecy that Patrick read. All right. So the promise is a long time coming. Messiah does not come during the time of Babylon. And eventually the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. And then the Persians were defeated by Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And finally the Greeks were, were taken over by the Roman Empire. And it's during this time that Jesus comes into the world that we have this story about Jesus being born and the Magi coming. It's under Roman rule. Now, Rome was amazingly organized in how they used to do things. When they would take over a country, uh, let's say a country takes over the United States, right? They would uh, allow a puppet ruler to rule them so that the people would be kind of happy, but Rome would really uh, take taxes and tribute. So what would happen is, uh, let's say um, Trinidad and Tobago takes over the United States, just to make it fun, right? Uh, and they would say, okay, we're going to let you have a president. We're going to name who it is, but it'll be one of your own people. We're going to make Keith Turley president. And... Um, What's going to happen is, Keith, you know, you can pretty much rule the United States, but we're going to tax the heck out of you, and you can't have the death penalty, and basically we're really in control, but it it looks better if one of your own is in control. All right? So that's what was happening. Rome was really in charge of Israel, uh, and they even had a governor there on site, but there was this guy that they put into power named King Herod, who wasn't even a full-blooded Jewish man. Well, our story opens up during this rule of King Herod and continues with these words. And Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Or This, this word could be uh, worship or pay homage to. Wait a minute. I just got done saying that Rome is really in control. But then there's this King Herod guy... And now the Magi are coming, and they're saying there's a new king being born. What's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. Matthew is piquing our interest now. He is uh, he's piquing our interest in this conflict of empires that is pregnant in this passage. There can only be one king. Is it Herod? Or is it Rome? Or is it someone else? Is it a kingdom of men? Or is it a kingdom of Jesus? The bigger question is, and this is going to be a theme that runs throughout this whole passage. Who will respond to the heavenly king correctly? How will they respond? Will it be the king of Israel and the chief priests and the scribes? Or will it be these travelers from the east? Well, in the first century, it wouldn't even be a question. Of course, King Herod and the scribes and the chief priests are going to know all about Israel's Messiah, right? They've got the scriptures. They've got all the history they're connected to. They would be the ones to know. But yet, here we have three travelers from the east coming. Pagans, idol worshipers, stargazers. And they 
would not be expected to know what was going on with Israel. Let me explain that. Magi were well known in antiquity as people who could read the stars. Today we might call Magi a mix between astronomers and astrologers. They did both. Astronomy is an interesting word. It comes from two Greek roots. Astros means star and the nomos means law. So astronomy is star law. And it wasn't like a legal law. It was like the law of how the stars would go in the sky, what stars would be where, what time of year. They, they even had in their records, we can see how they knew when, when comets would come, uh, much like astrophysicists do today. They had it all figured out just from observation. So they had that side. They had this expertise of, of astronomy. And then there's astrology, okay, which again is astron for star, and logos for word or message. So they were stargazers, and they also were astrologers, which means that they would look to the stars for a message or a word from the stars. Long story short, to the Israelites, this was a major taboo. It was linked with pagan idolatry. Magi are negatively mentioned also a couple times in Scripture. In Daniel, those people that uh, um, try to interpret the dreams for the king, those are magi. And also there's magi twice listed in the book of Acts. Uh, Usually they're uh, sorcerers or people that give trouble to either Peter or Paul. Oh, There's one more thing. The Magi were probably from Babylon. The Messiah was prophesied to come rescue Israel during their exile in Babylon. Who would be the least likely messenger of the Messiah's arrival? Pagan stargazers from Babylon. Okay? All this to say, the Magi would be least likely to know about the Savior of Israel, let alone the least likely to actually worship Him. But there they are. And why? Because they saw this weird star in the sky, and it intrigued them, and they followed it. In fact, it intrigued them so much, they thought it was so important that they risked a perilous journey from modern-day Iraq all the way over to the coast of where Israel is. Not only that, but we know that they carried all of these precious, expensive gifts, which means that they were always in peril of bandits. They had a huge caravan, most likely. All this to come see the newborn king. Now, people have debated over the source of the star. Some of the best evidence shows that during the year 7-6 BC, the planets Jupiter and Saturn were aligned. To the Magi, the planet Jupiter, actually, and not just the Magi, but the ancient Near East, the planet Jupiter was, the, they didn't know it was a planet, it was the star of kings. And the planet Saturn was the star of the Jews. So when those two were aligned, the Magi probably thought, hey, there's going to be a new king of the Jews. Uh, but whatever the source of the star, God used it to guide the Magi to Jerusalem. So they come to Herod, they come to Jerusalem, and they tell him about what they've seen, and they want to know where this king of the Jews is. And it says that Herod is troubled by this news. And he calls together the chief priests and the scholars of the Bible to find out where this is supposed to happen. And it's it's interesting, like these scholars come and and they just say, without flinching, well, it's supposed to come in Bethlehem. The scripture, uh, the prophet Micah said so. 
So they, they get the sign. They hear what the Magi have to say about the star. They think that uh, they get asked the question where the king is going to be born. And they know the answer. Bethlehem. Now, remember how I asked you what a worshiper looks like. You can tell a worshiper by how he or she responds to the revelation given them. Responds to the revelation given them. So let's look at Herod's perspective first. He gets revelation. He gets the scriptures. Herod was troubled by this news about the king of the Jews being born in Bethlehem. Why? Because the prophecy wasn't just about a new king. It was about the Messiah, who would be the end-all, be-all king. And if he was going to be king, it meant that Herod couldn't be king. Herod, who had no connection with King David, and you remember our studies in the genealogies are starting to pay off now. We see that Jesus, Matthew, builds this case for Jesus being connected to David's line. Herod is not connected to that line. It meant that Herod would have to give up his power if he recognized Jesus as king. And allow me to be a nerd for a minute, as if you could stop me. Um, in the Lord of the Rings, other fellow nerds, uh, who is the steward of Gondor? Come on, I know you guys know. Okay, Denethor was this, the steward of Gondor. You see, uh, Gondor is this kingdom of, of men in, in, in Middle-earth, and there was uh, supposed to be ruled by this line of kings and they thought the line of kings had had died out and so these stewards took over and very rightfully so they kind of ran Gondor while the kings were away but there was a prophecy that one day a king from the line of kings would come back and so in Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, Aragorn comes back and he's the rightful king to take the throne but Denethor doesn't really believe him doesn't really want to give up his throne right and so he gives resistance to Aragorn well, Herod is exactly the same way. I, okay, that's too far. Herod's slightly similar to the same thing. He was not the rightful heir to the throne, which made him self-conscious about losing it. In fact, he was a tyrant who thought nothing. He killed wives. He killed people uh, because he, he was um, threatened that they were going to take over his throne. In fact, um, Dale Bruner writes that Caesar Augustus once said, it's better to be Herod's pig than one of his sons. He actually killed two of his own kids, his sons, because he thought they would usurp his throne. Later on in chapter 2, Herod would ask the Magi, right, to report back so he could worship the child too. It was all a conspiracy. What he wanted to do was kill Jesus. And the Magi went home a different way because they got warned by an angel. And so Herod had all the male boys, all the boys, male boys, uh, all the boys two years old and under killed who lived in that area. Now that's extreme uh, paranoia, don't you, don't you think? Herod is afraid of giving up his power. And it's so ironic. Here are these pagans from the east giving proper worship to the God of Israel, and Herod, who's the king of Israel, is killing his own kids. Acting very much like a certain pharaoh we know from Egypt. The point is that for those of us who claim to follow Jesus, we need to ask, how might I be a little bit like Herod? I know that sounds harsh. I know you probably haven't killed uh, mass amounts of children in your life. But we do need to surrender our kingdoms to God. You may not know this, but each of you has a kingdom. In fact, uh, Dallas Willard says that 
a, a kingdom is the effective range of your will. So obviously Jesus, who's God, you know, has a much larger kingdom. His will is effective uh, wherever he wants. Uh, but everyone's got a kingdom. Think first of your body. It's the effective range of your will. You can do almost anything you want within certain bounds with your body. Even Stella, who turns two on Tuesday, has a, has a queendom. Excuse me. She has a queendom. She can choose whether she wants to scream or not. She can choose whether she wants to pinch her sister or give hugs. She doesn't have much of a queendom yet, but she has something. She has an effective range of her will. And each of us has a kingdom that we can either place under Jesus' kingdom or we can be at battle with him. I had some examples, but I, I was talking to Nikki earlier. Nikki, I was going to invite you to come forward and share how, how you surrendered a little bit of your queendom uh, this week. So for those of you who know me, you'll know it's really difficult for me to say anything in three to four minutes, but I'll try. <laughs> but secondly, though, if you know me, you'll know that I am a very physically affectionate, touchy person, um, which in some cases can be great and appreciated by people, but I've learned in the last couple years without boundaries, um, it can be a not very good thing. And so I really felt like the Lord was leading me in the last, well, couple years <laughs> but I finally started listening in the last week to actually <laughs> my friends are laughing um, <laughs> to actually listen and say you know like I need to protect myself and the people around me and I need to set boundaries they're not convenient and they're not fun and um, I was buying into the lie of the enemy that there were um, things that I could that would fulfill or satisfy me that were out of, outside of God's will and I finally made the commitment, said, you know, I'm going to set some boundaries, set them, emailed them to about 10 people in my life that I know will tell me if I'm, you know, stepping outside of them. And I just felt like the Lord really encouraged me in that. Um, I was working at Starbucks the other night, and I had a customer come through the drive-thru, and just normal conversation, you know, how are you? And I was like, oh, we're busy, but we're good. And um, when she pulled up, she um, I helped her throw order and everything, and she looks at me and she says, I feel like the Lord is leading me to give this to you. And, um, and she pulled out a gift certificate. She says, I'm a masseuse, and I wanted to give you a free hour massage for Christmas. And that is like so my love language, and that was one of the things I'd just given up. And so um, I shared that with Chris, and he wanted me to share it with you guys just as an encouragement, you know, like that, um, that we have a God that loves us, and he's not going to withhold something from us that's good. And so, like, if there's any of you guys that are fighting with any of those queen or kingships, you know, if there's something that you feel like God's leading you to give up, like, you know, listen, it's, like, totally worth it. So, Thanks, Nikki. Appreciate that. I think, Nikki, what I love about that story was, so, well, so many things, but one of the things that really communicates is that how simple that is. Um, giving up parts of your kingdom doesn't mean just becoming a zombie and not wanting anything or desiring anything or having a life. God so desires us to have good things and experience abundant life. But sometimes our appetites get out of control, right? And um, Nikki, it's just great that you recognize that in your own life in one small area, as you put it, which is a huge thing. And uh, you made a sacrifice and then God appoints this, this, I don't know, this experience where you get an appropriate avenue to, um, to make up for that loss. Anyway, I, I won't keep going down that road, but um, I appreciate you sharing. And, and I think that 
you know, I, I can ask myself the questions. Am I using my money for the work of Jesus or do I use it merely to please myself or to build this false sense of security? Uh, do I use my body to honor Jesus or do I, you know, in, engage in inappropriate sexual activity, substance abuse, overeating, undereating, so I look a certain way? Uh, do I use my mind and my energy uh, my education, do I use all the stuff that God's given me to, to bless other people, or do I use it just to further my own agenda? Um, in every one of those cases, my motives are mixed, my answers are mixed, and I, I would encourage you to look at your, your kingdoms and, and what areas um, can, we can lie down and offer over to Jesus. Now, the scary thing is about Herod, um, is I see myself in him. He was unwilling to budge I'm handing his kingdom over. Uh, and the really scary thing, and this hits home for me and, and probably for you because you're listening to a sermon from Scripture right now, is that he had the Scriptures. He and the scribes and the chief priests heard with their own ears the prophecy from Micah, the stuff about the star. They knew all the stuff about how the Messiah was supposed to come. And they didn't respond in obedience. Hearing the scriptures, I'm sorry, I should have told you this before we started, but hearing the scriptures is dangerous. You think you're just here sitting in a, in a, in a pew and, and passive, but it's not. It's a dangerous encounter when we read the scripture. Because then we're responsible for how we respond. Now, let's turn to the Magi and look at things from their perspective. Pagan stargazers from the east, probably from Babylon, the Magi's story is surrounded by good news. God in His graciousness sent them a sign, even though they worshipped other gods. God was seeking the Magi, even when they weren't looking for Him, which is nothing but pure grace. Now, that's not permission to look at horoscopes or go to palm readers or check fortune cookies uh, to show you to, and expect God to show you something. You'll probably get some kind of revelation from those activities, but it probably won't be from God. The point of the Magi and the star is that they were obedient with what they had. The star, if you notice in the story, though, could only take them so far. The star is kind of vague. It got them to, to Jerusalem. But from there, they needed more special revelation. They needed the scriptures. Scripture is the, the thing that pinpointed the location of Jesus in Bethlehem. The amazing thing about the Magi is their response to God's revelation. They traveled vast distances, probably from present-day Iraq, all the way to Jerusalem. They brought expensive gifts in this is yet one more aspect of what it means to worship, to make sacrifices. We give of our best, the best of our time, the best of our treasures, the best of our talents. What does it look like to worship? It costs. It costs something. And sometimes nice people at Starbucks pay you back. Like in Nikki's case, and sometimes it just costs. The Magi show us on the one hand never to underestimate who God reaches out to. Remember, if you, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, your heart should be set on sharing the good news of Jesus with all the world, not just people that look like you or talk like you or live right by you, but even the ones in alleys that look different than you, right? 
Even those who follow religious or non-religious practices that contradict what Jesus is about. How much different than a, than a Jewish religion does the, do the Magi get? I mean, they were completely out there. If you were to say, what types of people would be mo, uh, you know, least likely uh, to, to worship Jesus? You would think of these Magi characters. So I want to encourage you, you know, as you're thinking about people in your own lives, you think, oh, you know, that person... That person would never follow Jesus. So I'm, I'm just going to give up praying for them. I'm going to give up talking to them. Never, never give up. The, the cool thing about the Magi story to me is that, hey, if, if, he, if he can use a star to draw like these guys who are not even in the ballpark into worshiping Jesus, if he can do that, well, he did it for me too. He did it for you too. So that, you're pretty out there. You used to be. Uh, he can do it for anyone. And that is awesome news. On the other hand, the great news is that we're uh, all invited to follow Jesus. No matter what our religious, our social, our cultural, moral background, we are all invited to start following Jesus as our Savior now. Verse 10 says that the Magi rejoiced exceedingly. Eugene Peterson says that they could hardly contain themselves. And again, the question is, how do we respond? The Magi respond with worship. They may have only wanted to come in the first place to pay homage uh, to this new king, but something happened when they met the living Jesus. Something happened and they left a different way. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, of course that means that they went home like a different road, right? Because they were warned by an angel not to not to go to King Herod. But also in Matthew's Gospel, he does this play on, on the word way, road, journey. It's all the same word in the Greek, hados. And what it means is, is a path. And so, not a physical path, but a spiritual path as well. You might recall Jesus saying, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide that leads to destruction, but the gate is narrow that leads to life. And so, here, the, the Magi experience the living Jesus. And they go home a different way. Yeah, they go home, they don't go back to Herod, but they also, I think, are forever changed. Worship is an encounter with the living Jesus and then living differently because of it. It's recognizing God's amazing gift of grace. Every one of us, if you're even here, has been led by some kind of star in your life. I mean, Scripture is pretty clear that we can't even want to want God unless He is drawing us to Him. That's a very humbling thought. You thought you were here because you were, you know, good and you're going to go to church or something. Well, kudos. But, but something bigger, someone bigger has drawn you to hear the Word. And at one point, probably to make a, make a decision to follow Jesus. We learn from Herod that worship involves surrendering our agendas. Surrendering those agendas where they conflict uh, with Jesus' kingdom. And we learn from the Magi that worship at least involves responding to Jesus in a way that's obedient and sacrificial and don't forget joyful and causes you to live differently. So, we've heard the word of the Lord. The Savior has come, invites you and I into a relationship with Him of trust and love 
and obedience. The dangerous question is, how will you respond? Would you pray with me?